This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Determining the personal identity of somebody is a key step in many business processes. The Transportation Security Administration, for example, wants to identify me as Christian Tevish when I travel. My phone needs to identify me when I unlock it. And wouldn't it be nice if my doctor would greet me by name and make sure that nobody else uses my insurance policy to get care? Face recognition is a technology that has made enormous progress over the last few years. Our face is now captured in countless settings. Whether you're walking down the streets of Shanghai or you browse to a department store in New York, cameras are everywhere. And the images captured by these cameras are analyzed by some really smart, sophisticated systems. So in my show today, I want to figure out the good side and maybe the bad side of this mega trend. For that, I will be speaking to two wonderful guests. Uh, Sean Moore is the CEO of TrueFace, a technology company focusing on face recognition. And in the second half of the show, I will talk to Andrea Matrishen, who is a professor of law and the co-director of the Center of Law, Innovation, and Creativity. At this point, welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Sean, I just spent two weeks in China. Uh, how many times do you think my picture was taken there and processed by some face recognition software? <laughs> very difficult to determine, but I'm guessing it's in the thousands. In the thousands uh, of times? I would assume so, yes. Talk about the evolution of this facial recognition as, as a technology, where it, it started and, and where we stand today. Sure. So I, I think that you know it's important to know that facial recognition has been around for 30, 40 plus years now, uh, traditionally as a government technology. And you know, before the advancement in computing and edge computing, it was something that just, it took a lot of power to, to get behind it. Uh, it took a lot of reference images, images that were not readily available. And so I think, you know, it was in 2001 when the U.S. deployed facial recognition at the Super Bowl. And there was some significant public backlash uh, due to, they were, they were not transparent about it. Uh, they didn't tell people they were doing it. There were misidentifications. And overall, it just didn't seem to be, you know, a, a very good success. Uh, since then, you know, we started working in facial recognition in 2013, and even in the last six years now, uh, it, it's been incredible to watch the accuracy uh, grow, the computing power get, you know, get more advanced, and really allow us to to use the existing infrastructure that's out there and identify individuals in, in certain environments for things like access control, uh, border protection, um, you know, improving people's lives while also mitigating risks for fraud. So I would say over the past six years where I've been intimately familiar with facial recognition, you know, we've seen such an improvement that it's, it's almost a different technology. Give us a layman's perspective on how this works. As consumers, we're, fa we're used to face recognition from our phone. Uh, we use face recognition on our photo collection, right? I mean, Google Photo, for example, identifies my mother on all my photos once I told Google that this is my mother. How, how does it work? There must be some kind of masterpiece with telling this is my mother, and then there must be some form of geometric measurement of the pictures coming afterwards. Can you give us a right. kind of rough explanation how this works? Right. It's important to know that there, you know, facial recognition is a very broad word for, for a couple different things. The, the two that you're talking about is face matching, which is one-to-one -one matching. 
it is the login to your phone. So you've got a template stored on your phone and only you can get into your phone. That would be one-to-one matching. So the technology there is basically taking the blueprint of your face and overlaying that new blueprint to see how you know, how closely it matches. And at a certain threshold, you'll have access to your phone. The, the more difficult uh, version is, is the one-to-end. So it's recognizing one individual out of you know a million, 10 million, 100 million people. And for something like that, we take roughly 512 uh, different dimensions on your face, create a face template, and then use that as the reference image. So it's significantly more advanced uh, because you're, you're searching through you know, millions of faces to try to find this one person. So there are two different regions of facial recognition is, is the face matching and then the actual face identification or the one to end. Which one is harder? I mean, so it's a browsing through a million potential matches on me. That, that alone must take a lot of computing power. Is it literally a linear list, or is there some more guidance through an algorithm saying, like, well, this person has a big nose. I mean, pardon the anatomy, right? And with this big nose, let's look at other big nosy type of people. I mean, how, how, does, how does the algorithm work without getting too much into technicalities? It's taking the proportion of landmarks on your face and then overlaying those on the template. So you can break your face down into quadrants. We're basically measuring each quadrant uh, with very, very defined metrics and then analyzing those metrics. So, you know, it's not as simple as it, it does this person have a big nose or a wide smile, but that does go into the metrics. Talk about what true face is for those of us who don't know. Sure. Uh, we, we've sort of had our, our Al Gore mo- moment over the past couple months. Uh, so we started initially as Chewy, the smart doorbell, in 2013, we, uh, we were the first company ever to commercialize facial recognition in a consumer product. Uh, we were building custom hardware, and we've got, we, we embedded facial recognition on that unit to unlock the smart home. And so you know, we've been intimately familiar with how facial recognition could be used for access control. And when you think about access control, the biggest risk to that is if we let the wrong person in your house, you know, our, our company is, is at risk there, it's liable for that. And so... We really, really doubled down on making sure that the person is who they say they are, so protecting against presentation attacks, uh, people holding up pictures, videos, or cutouts to try and, quote-unquote, spoof the system. And, and that was really where we, we got our kickoff in the market. Uh, we spent the next about five years, uh, four and a half years, operating as a smart access control company. And it wasn't until 2017 where we realized that you know, we were the, the industry leader in commercializing facial recognition in these types of environments, and we had a significantly larger market if we were able to take what we had built from the software perspective and implement it across a variety of different infrastructures and hardwares that already exist. Now, there's a couple hundred million cameras out there right now, and our goal was to be able to turn those cameras into intelligent decision-making units. And so you know, we started as a facial recognition company, and just last week, actually, we launched uh, firearm detection, so being able to detect if a firearm is pulled in a public area. And the way that we see TrueFace evolving is, first and foremost, you know, humanity first, computer vision. We have to de- deploy this technology very responsibly, and we need to be transparent with how we're doing so for everyone to feel comfortable with it, especially in the United States. And so with that approach, we're building out different computer vision packages for different, for different industries and specific use cases to make those camera feeds intelligent and to give those customers or those enterprise clients information that they never knew they had. 
So we're going to talk about the kind of the, the ethical or the, the human dimension of face recognition in a moment. Uh, I just want to learn a little bit more about your business. Um, is face recognition as a, as, as, as a function recognize a face, either one-to-end uh, one or one-to-one? One? Is that becoming a commodity and everything, the action is really now in creating user experiences that benefit from that? Or is face recognition itself still so difficult that you can make money with face recognition alone? Uh, it, it's, it's in the process of the commoditization piece, but what you're what we have to step back and remember is that the data set is what powers the facial recognition accuracy. And so in China, uh, some of the companies over there have a billion Chinese faces. Their technology will not work as well in the U.S. and South America and Europe. And so, you know, to power the facial recognition system, you have to have diversity of data. and You've got to find different ways to go out and collect that information. So in a sense, the, the accuracy is not necessarily representative of a global population, uh, just depending on, on, on what data you fed the, the algorithms. So you know, facial recognition at this point, um, there are significant differences in providers in terms of accuracy. So I think that there's a couple more years there before it's entirely commoditized. But we as a company have absolutely already started thinking about how do we create a UI, how do we create interfaces in which it's you know essentially plug and play. It's as simple as our clients opening up a desktop app or opening up a mobile app and being able to monitor the system from there. So I think that that's the next wave of computer vision. Is it is it's taking the complication out of understanding it and, and really making it visual for people. If you would ask me what constitutes for a great car, I could I could just give you a number of performance dimensions such as accelerations and miles per gallon and cubic inches of storage space. What makes for good facial recognition software? There must be some form of accuracy, some form of, again, the spoof proofing that you mentioned earlier on. Uh, are there like established kind of four or five dimensions on which you have to compete uh, as a provider yes. of face recognition? I would say there, there's three very important things. The first one would be accuracy. The second one would be latency. And the third would be being able to ensure that the person is who they say they are, so the spoof detection. And there's a couple of ways in which to do spoof detection. One is what we call spoof detection, and that is analyzing a static frame from a feed and looking for anomalies in that image. So looking for things like reflection and glare. Uh, there's a, a couple of different uh, categories that we go through to ensure that person is real and that they're not holding up a picture. And then you have what's called active liveness, where you're asking someone to blink, to say something, to move their head around. And we're currently in the process of developing passive liveness, which we think is is by far uh, above and beyond the best solution for spoof or for, for anti-spoofing. And that is pairing the spoof detection with active liveness. So having something run in the background where we're measuring what the typical human behavior should be so that we know that that person is real. So the idea behind that is basically you're creating, I mean, there's more data now that it's dynamic that increases the discriminatory power of your algorithm ultimately? Right. And so uh, um, what can you give us a sense for appropriately trained data sets and this is, uh, uh, trained algorithms with large enough training data sets? Uh, and I, I know that's a very wishy-washy type of uh, question now. Um, but, but what type of accuracy are we talking about? So the, the, say China has you know a billion people, a billion, three hundred million people in the uh, in their database, um, and the camera is on me now on Tiananmen Square. Uh, right. What's the likelihood that they identify me incorrectly? Incorrectly, I would say it's. It, 
it's it's a difficult thing to to guess. Um, I would say it's unlikely that they identify you incorrectly. Um, they have a lot of data. What they may do is they may not have a as high of a confidence threshold as they would for say uh, someone that you know that's been seen around Tenement Square a few times. So it's really not that they're going to identify you incorrectly. It's that the confidence rate on that identification may be lower. So it's like always in statistics, right? There's error of type one and error of type two, and we exactly. might uh, might have, see somebody that is is innocent or is not on the wanted list, and vice versa. There's somebody on the wanted list that, that we don't track. Um, tell us a bit, Sean. Tell us now about now that we understand the technology itself. That that's kind of in in a, in a workflow diagram. This kind of this idea of here we do the face recognition, we identify the person. Uh, what use cases are there for your product? Sure. So we started with opt-in use cases, things like access control, um, VIP experience. And the reason being is, is we want people to be comfortable with this technology. We want them to see, you know, it can add convenience and efficiency and security to their lives. So the use cases that we're currently deployed in uh, range from the VIP experience in the hospitality industry to mobile banking enrollment. So ensuring that a person is who they say they are when they open a bank account to actually processing transactions with facial recognition. So it's all these things that that people are, you know, actively opting into to see what this is this experience is like. And what's very interesting to to witness is, you know, how how this has come across in the travel industry, especially in airports. I think there are 14 airports in the United States right now that are using some form of facial recognition throughout the process. So what we're seeing as an industry is facial recognition being adopted by people that see value in it. And I think that that's critical because when you recognize a risk with, you know, with opening a bank account or with giving away your social security number, you're looking for an alternative mechanism in which to identify yourself and what better than your face. And I think that the public perception is that, oh, well, what happens if, you know, my face, quote unquote, gets stolen? Well, the truth of the matter is that the way facial recognition works is the first time you enroll in that process, you know, we get your face template. If that template is ever compromised, it's not like you lose your identity. We delete that template and re-enroll you because it's gonna it's gonna spit out a new template. And so, you know, it's it's not as straightforward as people just assume that that their identities are being compromised if their face is stolen. If that was the case, I could go on Facebook and steal someone's identity. It just doesn't happen that way. And so, you know, the risks associated with facial recognition, I think, is is not nearly as high as what we're hearing about in the news. And, I, I, you know, it's really on companies like ours to educate the public about how this technology can be used to mitigate fraud. It can be used to mitigate someone stealing your credit card information or pulling money out of your, your debit card at an ATM. Uh, so, you know, we're really focused on making sure that the customer experience is, is extremely seamless and also provides and, and they can derive value from it. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Sean Moore, who is the CEO of TrueFace. And we're talking about use, user experiences, use cases of face recognition software. Um, Sean, it, it seems to me they're like kind of two types of user experiences. So the one is more latent. The other one is more active. Here's what I mean with this. With active is I'm staring in the camera at the airport and want the airport identifying me as me. I'm going to the bank, an ATM. I want to be identified as me. With passive, I mean I'm browsing through a store. There are cameras there without me knowing. 
And it basically weaves together my behavior, for example, of talking with a store associate, me buying something at the store register, me leaving the store. It weaves these things together. I never really get direct feedback. Uh, I would personally have no problems with that. But, but in some, some sense, the face recognition is, is hidden for me. Is, is that a good way of breaking up the world of face recognition in these, in these two classes? I think it's an accurate way of depicting uh, what's currently being tested in the market. I do think that it's it's you know critical to understand that the second piece of that can be done anonymously. So we don't need to know who you are uh, in terms of your personal information, your name, your, you know your credit card number associated uh, to to do those types of analytics. And I think that it's a, again it's it's important to remember that you're giving away all of this information when you scan the internet, when you go on Amazon, when you go on different shopping sites. And so it's really a, an initiative from the brick and mortar retail stores to, to try and understand their customers to compete in this space. And like I said, it does not have to have identifiable information. It can just be, you know, I know that this person is roughly of this age. Uh, they've spent 35 minutes in the store and, and they left with a bag. So it does not have to be identifying you. It can just be anonymized analytics, and, and that's part of the solution that we offer is you know, blurring unknown faces, meaning if, if you're not opting into a program, we actually blur your face in real time. We're not collecting any data about you or entirely anonymized uh, analytics reporting. Now, there seems to be a gray zone here, right? So there is one shopping episode where you track me first in, in, in the wardrobe at the shelf when I pick up a new t-shirt. You track me at the wardrobe when I put it on and try it on. When I talk to the sales associate, if they have it another size, and then when I buy it, you weave together these these points. And you know that customer 3756 on Monday bought bought a shirt. Um, but you could also then uh, a week later re-identify me as somebody who has purchased before, in which case you still don't know that I'm Christian Terbish, but you are kind of storing the data beyond one service episode. Um, where, where is the line between anonymous versus matched to a person? Sure. Uh, and, and just to be clear here, we're not actually do this. I'm doing this. I'm just speaking from, from my experience and from what I know is out there. You know, I think the the... The trade-off there is that, right, you are anonymous in the sense that your name is not being associated with that account, but you are marked as a repeat visitor. Uh, we are, are very headstrong about the moral responsibility that customers have when deploying this type of technology and who we'll work with. So, you know, part of our best use guidelines is that they have this, you know, front and center in their store saying that they are using this type of technology and it goes back to transparency. You know, we want to live in a world where people are comfortable with this technology, and the only way to do so is by deploying it responsibly and being transparent about how we do it. So, you know, again, uh, we are not currently doing this. Uh, it's, it's not something that we have in our in our solutions, but we are seeing it happen. We talked about China earlier on, and uh, the, the famous use case there is uh, the city is tracking its citizens if they jaywalk and uh, giving out either tickets or displaying pictures of, of people with their name on big billboards if they have, have crossed the red light. Um, through this, it has gotten some form of a negative reputation. Um, I, I want to understand the legality of these use cases in business right now. What, what, what legal rules are in place in the United States that... Uh, prevent certain things like that from happening? Yeah, I think that, you know, taking a look geographically at how facial recognition is deployed, uh, China is a is significantly different market than the United States in terms of perception, in terms of legality, 
and, and even in terms of how society is, is brought up, I think that you know, I've spent some time over there, and, and it, my you know my thoughts on the matter are that the citizens over there are, are somewhat okay with it. They've grown up knowing that that's that's how the the world works, and that's how their society operates. Now in the U.S., I think there's there's a big pushback about things like biometrics, and even with what's happening with the, the social media sites now. So, you know, I think that when you when you look at how the government is regulating it, uh, it's still really up in the air. And we've seen a couple things come through the wire about Congress wanting to come in and regulate. But I think that it's you know it's going to cause an issue if Congress or whoever those legislators are do not consider uh, CEOs of companies like ours. We need to have a say in the matter because if someone's regulating something and they don't understand how it works, that's never going to end well. And so you know, we're, we're all for the regulation of facial recognition and, and overall computer vision technology, but we do feel strongly that the, the companies within the industry have to have a say in that because we are the true you know, experts in the field. We are the ones with the intimate experience in running these companies day to day, so we know how this technology works. So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, we're for regulation. I saw that, you know, a representative from Microsoft's executive team wants regulation. I've actually reached out to him three times uh, because I think it would be a good initiative to go in on with them. I have not heard back yet, but it's definitely something that that we're, you know, on the pulse of, and and we do want to see happen. We just want to see it done right. You earlier on uh, mentioned, I think, the first principle. I uh, went to your website, and there you outlined three principles of kind of how this regulation or how this technology need to be evaluated. Can you just walk us through the th- the, the three? I think the first one was that kind of the human aspect, uh, but but maybe kind of you you can just walk us through those three again. Yeah, absolutely. So humanity first means that you know we are doing what we can to collect data that completely eliminates bias. So when there's public data sets available, they're typically biased to their region that they're collected in or where they're deployed. And it's really, really important for us to collect diverse data sets from all over the world. And when we think about human first, what we really mean there is if there's ever a situation in which uh, you know someone's life is, is at risk or uh, you know, someone's life could be affected by, by an identification, a human has to make the ultimate decision. This technology has been built to augment human decision-making, not replace it. So it's an extra data point. It's, a, it's an input of data for someone to make a decision on. It is not meant to be the end-all singular piece of feedback to, to, to decide. And then the, you know, the second piece there is it's your customers, your data. Uh, part of our, you know, our strong core is that our clients own data. We do not own our client data. We do not want to own our client data. That is their data to store. That is their data to use. And so when you think about what's happening on the online world now, how data is being transferred from client one to client two to client three, and they're reselling it, the customer is sitting back there taking all the costs because they're not benefiting from their data being sold to third parties. The way that we feel is, is in this industry especially, that our customers' data is their data. It's all hosted on-premise, so it's localized to their infrastructure, and we never have access to it. And that's part of our, our promise um, with transparency. And then the third is you know, we've been in this industry for the last six years now. Like I said, it's, it's kind of our Al Gore moment we started with. Uh, commercializing facial recognition for the smart home, in which we've seen now um, Nest come out with a camera that are talking about facial recognition, uh, Ring is talking about facial recognition. So, you know, we had this idea six years ago, and we commercialized it six years ago. And, you know, we really want to be the thought leaders in the industry as we've seen the evolution over the last six years. We are the only ones that have, have been 
on the ground level for this. And so when we think about the next three to five years and the advancements in edge computing and how people's experiences will, will shift, we want to be the ones that are, you know, that are leading that charge because we are informed about how this evolution has occurred. So, Sean, uh, I'm, I'm struck and maybe impressed by the second principle that you articulated, uh, your data, right? You're working with, with a client. The client keeps the data. You enable the client. Uh, that means that you are not using the applications of your software for some form of meta learning, for training your algorithms uh, at your firm level. It's only always only for that particular application? That's correct, yes. Is, is that common in the industry, or maybe it's not common in the industry, and that's why, you, that's why you came up with that principle, I guess, right? Yeah, no, it's not common at all. Uh, you know, you look at what some of the larger players in the industry are doing, and I'm sure you can guess which one, but they're basically pooling all the data together and allowing people to have access to it. Uh, we find that just improper. Uh, we don't want to be in the in the in the business of selling your data to another party. You know, I think when, when you do think out five years, uh, you think about the interaction of humans with technology. And if, if you walk into a hotel and then you go to a coffee shop and then to a movie theater, you know, our idea is that all that data is siloed. You are going to that hotel for a reason. You are paying that hotel for a service. You are going to a movie to watch a movie. Uh, the transfer or sharing of information, if it does happen, should be agreed upon by you, and it should be between that hotel company and that movie theater. It should not be our job to, you know, to federate your identity across the U.S. And so, you know, we are very, very headstrong about data protection and you know, your your customers, your data. That's it's as simple as that. Talk about how you make money out of that kind of out of, out of that knowledge. I mean, I, I think that's true for many of these kind of data-rich kind of business models. People often speak about data being the new oil and people are paying with data. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you as a business want to make some form of money. Um, and so how, how, how do you, what's your revenue model here? Sure, uh, we charge annual licenses for our solutions. So yes, it does put us, it puts us in a situation where we have to be creative about how we get data and, and we do do so. So we do collect diversified data but uh, you know, other companies are, are capturing it in different ways. Our business model is primarily we have these package solutions, like I said, which can be which can be put on camera infrastructure out of the box, uh, you know, under a day, and then we charge an annual license for those different models, uh, ranging from face detection, face recognition, uh, emotion to, to to even gun detection and our firearm detection. And what's interesting there is, is we recently saw a video of, of someone or, or someone robbing a hotel, I think in Florida, a couple days ago. And when we took a look at that video, our technology would have been able to inform the local police department uh, within 30 seconds that someone had pulled a gun at that hotel. So we are looking for innovative ways to add value, uh, you know, reduce crime, reduce the time. The time to respond is, is critical in those scenarios. And so we are packaging these solutions up and selling them as an annual license. So that's interesting. You're moving, in the case of kind of a detective firearm, you're, you're moving the kind of the alert mechanism from somebody pressing a button, hopefully in secret without the offender noticing, calling the police towards you, just tracking the imaging stream, and then automatically making that call? Exactly. I mean, it, it still goes to a review, right? It still needs to be reviewed by a human, but uh, we can capture that three seconds, five seconds of video footage, send it to a human and say, is this a gun? Um, but you're automating that process. And, 
in our mind, it's, it's a significant deterrent to people that would be going into Polygon and rob a place, but also it reduces that response time because if you can't press a silent alarm, you know, you're out of luck. And it, this way, at least we have another form of, of, you know, notification or alert to whoever needs to see it in real time. And then they can make the decision on whether to call the police or whether to, to send someone over. So that is clearly in line with your first principle, right? It's the human decision maker stays stays in power as opposed to automatically calling 911 based on an image analysis. Um, exactly. Tell us, I mean, the, these kind of the firearm detection, uh, those, those seem to be recent trends and recent developments that you just kind of cracked uh, over the last year or two. Uh, imagine another five, ten years going forward. Uh, where is this going to go next? What, what are the, the big opportunities that you see with more, more computing powers, more training data becoming available? Where will we be in 2025? It's a very, very difficult question to answer. Um, you know, what I see is is really the, the advancement of edge computing becoming the, the next really powerful uh, industry in the next probably three years or so. And where I see our type of technology or computer vision, computer, computer vision playing a role there is being able to customize people's experiences in real time. So depending on whether you walk into a store, you walk into a theater, you walk into a hotel, you're going to the airport, it's as it's a seamless as you walking through like you normally would without having to pull anything out. Yet, if you're opting into programs, people know who you are, they know what you like. And so you're getting that level of customization uh, that we are now demanding as society, and you're getting it in real time. I think about what Amazon has done for delivery. People expect things now. They expect answers now. They expect their clothing, their food. So this expectation is not going to diminish. It's going to increase. And when we're able to customize an entire experience for you in five to ten years, I think that there will be a lot, a lot of buy-in for that. That's a fascinating vision, Sean. It reminds me of an earlier show that we had with Disneyland talking about the Magic Band. You're basically now providing customized user experience uh, just just without the band, right? Your face is your Magic Band, and the exactly. customers like uh, companies like TrueCareFace will only going to push this forward. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.